0: wonder uh, what you would say if I asked you what does it mean to be committed to someone? Maybe you might give me the definition uh, of commitment. Maybe an image springs to mind. Maybe marriage. The uh, vows that you say through uh, life and through sickness and in health, in suffering, in riches and poor till death parts us. Commitment. Maybe you'd say work. I, I pledge myself to work for a set number of hours a week for however much or however little you want to pay me uh, until the end of this contract. A, co- um, a work commitment. Or maybe uh, you think of a hobby, uh, a football team. Uh, we're committed till the end of the season. We shall play through rain and snow, in sunshine, uh, in all the different weathers. We shall play and hopefully we'll win that type of commitment what what would you say if I asked you what does it mean to be committed (coughs) well those are great images but we look around us now and they don't help us anymore do they? marriage is no longer a, a, a term for commitment I shall maybe be with you until the end of the year I shall be with you until I feel otherwise Maybe uh, some people don't even get married because, well, I'm already living with you. We're already, um, our accounts are already joined. I pay for the rent. You pay for the bills. It's a fine, uh, organized situation that we have here. Why do we need to go and pay a large sum of money for a party for something that doesn't really matter to us? That's the world that we live in. Now, for us who are Christians, marriage is different, but that's the world of marriage out there for work, well I'll work but I'm not working my hardest you say a load of things in your interviews or I'm a great team player but then actually in reality you really hate people or uh, I, I work great alone and really you're a great procrastinator work commitment doesn't really mean much anymore because no one likes work anymore or hobbies Take the football team example again. That's fine, but now you look at the Premier League, uh, the top <coughs> football league in Britain, and there's a transfer window in January, so halfway through the season you can leave if you want. Nothing really shows us commitment anymore, does it? Not when we look around us. But thankfully this evening we do not look around us. We look to the cross. Because... Uh, even as Christians, though for us, marriage truly does mean true commitment. we struggle and we fail, and we 're human, and we let each other down. But when we look to the cross, that shows us true undefiled commitment that 's what commitment is uh, i don 't think any of you would have thought what does commit when I asked you what does it mean to be committed thought of the cross but um, It is an aspect of the beauty of Christ. Why is it an aspect of the beauty of Christ? Well, because commitment affects our entire relationship with our Savior, with Jesus. The loyalty of our Savior means that we get to experience the true love of God. The true heart of God. We looked at that this morning, didn't we? God reveals himself to us. But if he wasn't committed, then he would... Do away with us. Again, as we looked at this morning, the Israelites grumble and God gets angry at them. But if God wasn't committed, then he'd just get angry and wipe them off the face of the earth. He could do the same with you and me. But Christ is committed. And that's where we find ourselves. In Romans chapter 5, it shows the commitment of Christ. But we don't just jump into a letter jump in at the fifth uh, chapter no how do we get there well the first three chapters of romans paul is uh, telling uh, the romans who he's writing to you're guilty everybody is guilty whether you're a jew or not you are guilty before god you have sinned and you have fallen short everybody is guilty and the punishment for that guilt is death but well, thankfully, he doesn't just leave the letter there. That would be a very bleak, a very depressing letter. No, he goes on. And at the end of chapter 3, he talks that you can be made right through faith. You can be justified through faith. And chapter 4 is where he gives the example. Abraham, the man of God, the friend of God, comes and he trusts God. And it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. In other words, he was right with God. Why? Because he did something. No, that's not the reason. Why? Because he said something. No, that's not what it it said. No, because of faith, trust in God. And Paul says, well, it wasn't just Abraham that applies to, but that applies to the entire world, all of the human race. See there at the end of chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, verse 23 says, The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Trust in Christ, and you shall be saved. Trust in Christ, and your guilt is removed. That's what Paul is saying. We'll come to the term justification later, and we'll have a look at its definition. But that's where we find ourselves. And so now, chapter 5, now is the result of that sacrifice of Christ. That is the result of that justification. And we get a lot uh, of themes through this passage, but uh, Hendrickson helpfully says that one of those themes is hope. And we have a hope that is firmly anchored and amounts to certainty with respect to salvation. Certainty with respect to salvation. Hope. Do you have certainty with respect to your salvation this morning, this evening? Because I doubt. I'm sure you do too. Or maybe you have no certainty because you don't know Jesus. Either way, it's worth hearing what Romans 5 verses 1 to 11 has to say. Because that anchor that Hendrickson is talking about, that hope, that anchor is Jesus. That is the commitment of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Because Christ is so committed to us that he has interwoven his very fate with ours. If you are his this evening, what happens to Christ happens to you. Where Christ is, you shall be. He sits at the right hand of the Father, there you go. He goes back into the grave, there you go as well. And so we'll look at the commitment of Christ uh, in two parts. The first is that he came. Christ shows his commitment to us in that he came to earth. We've already said that we were wrong before God. Uh, We were guilty of turning uh, against him. Uh, We were enemies of the throne. Uh, We turned our backs on God and said, no, I will not listen to you. I will not listen to what you say is right and wrong. I will decide how I live my life. Each of us have different stages, different degrees of guilt, but we are all guilty. We are all under uh, that one Category, but but Christ came that we may be made right with God. Christ came that our guilt will be removed. Christ came that uh, our sinful stain, that dark spot on our soul, will be washed whiter than snow. We uh, looked at that around the table this morning, didn't we? Communion, that his body broken, bearing our sins on the cross, and his blood shed, washing us clean. We were dead, but now we're alive. If, if you have trusted in Christ, that is your situation. Ephesians 2 tells us that, that once you were dead, you were by nature children of wrath. But Christ came, and he made you alive. He reached his hand into the grave, into the muck, into the filth, and he brought you out. And he doesn't just leave you there. If you have trusted in Christ this evening, he doesn't just leave you out of the grave, as Adam was, with no history of past sins. No, no, no. He raises you up to heaven with himself. That's the hope that Hendrickson's talking about. And that is... Beautiful and perfect. And that is your salvation story if you have trusted in Christ. But that's not all. The first five verses of chapter five tell us the extras that we get. The blessings that come with that sacrifice, with that um, justification. What do we have? He brings with him peace. We have been made right with God and so we have peace. We are no longer at war with God. God no longer has to destroy us. And we no longer hate him. And because we have peace with God, we have access to God. Boldly, we can approach the throne. We have hope, like we've already said. Christ doesn't just leave us. God didn't send Christ that we would be saved and then left to wander. No, he, he wants to bring us to himself. And so he'll keep us. That's the commitment of Christ Again. I wonder how many times I'll say commitment in the next half hour. He keeps us. We have a hope that one day we shall be with him in glory. We have understanding of suffering. We've got that list from verse 3 to verse 4. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering... Produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. We understand not the full range of details of why we suffer here and now, but we understand that God is working within us and refining us, making us more like himself, creating an, creating, creating, in us perseverance, character, and hope. And then finally, in verse 5, what else does he give us? He gives us his spirit. He could not stay. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he left us his spirit. That he would always be with us. That we would always know his presence and his guiding. He came. Now, uh, you may be saying, Evan, that's great, but what's going on there? How on earth does that show the commitment of Christ? How does that show what you're trying to talk about? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't on its own. If we just say that he came, not not really, it doesn't really show the commitment, does it? No, the, he, the commitment is shown because he came despite the circumstances. He came despite the circumstances. Because it wasn't a cushy deal he got. He doesn't get anything out of it no look at verse 6 you see at just the right time when we were still powerless christ died for the ungodly while we were still powerless in other words we go back to that image of us being dead again we a dead body does not hear you poke it feel it you poking it it does not hear you speaking to it it does not see you waving your hand in front of his eyes a dead body sees nothing it hears nothing it feels nothing That's what we were. We couldn't even cry out for help. But Christ came. He came knowing not only were we powerless, but we had nothing to give Him. We could not give Him our service because we fail, and we're broken, and we're stupid. We could not give Him proper praise because, again, we're human. There's nothing that you or I could give Christ in return for his sacrifice. There is nothing that could pay the debt that we owe. Nothing. He came while we were still powerless. Before we could cry out, before we could even recognize him for who he is. He came, he was watching, he heard our, he saw our situation. And he came. And then we get to verse 8, the highlight of the passage. I'll read from verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only were we powerless, not only were we dead in the grave and buried and and far from him, not not only was that our situation, not only could we uh, struggle to pay him anything or offer him anything, not only that, we hated him. We were enemies. Enemies of God. That's what it means in Ephesians when it says we were by nature children of wrath. We are not innocent. We don't come close to innocent. We are enemies of the throne. And what do enemies get in the medieval pictures? They are hung. They are killed. And that's what we deserve. We were enemies of Christ, and yet he came. That's what it means in verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, someone who kind of does good stuff and looks clean, And it goes further, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Someone might just be good enough to die for them. No, no one wants to die for anybody. Because we care about ourselves, we don't get anything. We die, and and that's the end of. No one wants to die for anybody. Let alone our enemies. Let alone those that hate us and want us dead, who want nothing to do with us. No, Christ came and died while we were still sinners. Christ, as it were, entered into the enemy camp. He lived there and he put up with the sufferings until we put him to death. I love the phrase, uh, if you were the only one on earth, Christ would die for you. Because it's true. But we don't really think about that too much, do we? We we don't really delve deep into that. Because, well, if if you were the only one on earth and Christ would come to die for you, yes... You would be the one to betray him. You would be the one to beat him. You would be the one to spit on him. You would be the one to forge the nails and carve the cross. You would be the one to collect the thorns and twist them on his head. You would be the one to lie him on that cross and hammer the nails through his hands. You would be the one to raise the cross up and watch him suffer. You would be the one to pierce his side and mock him. That's the extent. That is the extent of why Christ came. Because he came, because he loved us, even while we were that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why does the fact that he came show the commitment of Christ? Because he came beso- uh, despite that. What a savior. What a savior. What a love. Why does this show the commitment of Christ? Because that's the chasm between you and God, me and God today, if you do not know Christ. But if you know Christ, that chasm has been, uh, it has been bridged. The gates of heaven are now open. He came despite the circumstances but he didn't just came come he t- he continues and that's our second point he continues very easy to remember i'll test you on them next time i'm here he came and he continues but yes he died for us that's great but how can i be sure even now that he still loves me i'm a bit of an idiot not just me, but you know, that's the, that's the quote. Uh, I'm a bit of an idiot. I, I, I fail. Uh, I turn from him day after day. I struggle with sin. I, 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 most of the time, I don't even read my Bible. I can't pray anymore because, well, I don't read my Bible, so therefore God is angry at me. How, how can I be sure, even now, that that love still applies? And so, we come to, in my opinion, the greatest and most heartwarming verses on assurance in the Bible. Verses 9 and 10. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Paul's argument here is one of logic. That's all it is. If Christ came and died and did all that while you hated him and he loved you then more than you can ever imagine wouldn't he love you now? Now that you can kind of respond in praise and in love if you follow Christ this evening. Now, yes, your love to him is is broken. It's not perfect it's better than what you were. Won't he love you now? It's the picture of an adopted child and his father. Uh, he comes to his father, and he said after messing up in school, uh, and his father's just told him off, and he comes downstairs, and, he, Dad, do you love me? Of course I love you. What do you want about? Well, I've messed up. And the father looks at him, and he says, well, You know you're adopted. So that should be enough, because I chose you. Most parents don't get to choose their kids. I chose you. I decided to love you before you even really knew who I was. I decided to love you before you even said you liked me. How much more won't I love you now? Now that you love me back. It's a simple image. That's all it is. Hendrickson says, if God did the greater, won't he more readily do the lesser? You want another simple image? Mothers in the congregation, birthing or looking after the baby, which is harder? I can't answer that question. I've got no clue. I don't even have kids. Which is harder? Do you go through the the back pain, the morning sickness, the troubled night's sleep, your ankles swelling maybe. I don't know what it is. But, you know, that sort of stuff. You go through all of that and after nine months and you get pain after pain after pain. All of you would like smiling at me now so I must be on the right track. You get all that pain. But then it's all worth it, isn't it? When you hold your child in your arms. But then they turn out like an idiot like me and they make you cry and they hurt you. Which is harder. Birthing or looking after them then, when actually, though they make you cry and though they're a pain in the backside, they kind of do nice things as well. Mother's Day is coming up. I'm sure you all get flowers and chocolates and whatever. Which is harder. Isn't it more easy to love the child now than it was when you went through all that pain? That's the image that we see here. If God did the the greatest thing there, won't he more readily do the lesser? If God loved you when you hated him, won't he love you now? It's that that simple. I could end it here. I could walk out, and that's the truth of it. It's, It's plain as day, written there. I could just read you Romans 5, 1 to 11, and be done. Because such is the truth there. He he became a man. He, He put on flesh. Christmas was only a few months ago. Hope you haven't forgot it. We looked at the incarnation, I'm sure. He did that huge thing. Something that we can't even comprehend now. But he went further still. He suffered and he died for you. He did it for you. Another of my favorite verses on assurance is john chapter 13 verse 1 which says jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father and having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end what's the end is it betrayal of judas no is it death on a cross no is it rising again No. Is it ascending to the right hand of the Father? No. It is when on that day he appears again, he shall have all his children with him. When the bride of Christ, that is the church, shall meet with her Saviour, and all shall be made well. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. We're not at the end yet, so he loves you. And when we get to the end, he'll love you. And for all eternity, he'll love you. Do you know you're the Savior this evening? Because this is only true for those that know him. Besides, it's not like we earned our salvation in the first place, is it? I didn't do anything. Christ died for me. Not Christ died and Evan did something. No. Words are important. Don't be so quick to throw yourself into them. The key word is justification. I've said it a few times. What does it actually mean? What's the definition? Well, it's a legal term. In other words, God, the judge, declares you not guilty. He looks at you and you're you're in the stand there in the courtroom. uh, and, And he sees the mountain of evidence piled against you. And he hears the jury say guilty, but then then in walks Jesus. And he stands there, and he looks at you, and he points, and he says, mine. And God looks at you, and he says, not guilty. So you walk out free. That's justification. If God, the judge, has declared you not guilty, then you are not guilty. You are free from the accusations of Satan, from the accusations of self, from the accusations of the world. God is the highest judge, the highest authority in all universes. No one's topping his authority. And so if he's declared you not guilty, then you are not guilty. While Christ lives, so does your hope. I said earlier, if Christ went back to the grave, then that's where you go. but he's not in the grave. And so for you to be, if you are truly a Christian this evening, for you to be lost of the love of God, for God to turn his back on you, Christ goes back into the grave, which we know isn't true, but we're so quick to doubt ourselves and say, well, no, God doesn't love me. But that's the case of it. Such is the power of God's love. Such is the power of Christ's sacrifice. I was arguing with someone recently he was saying no there's no true hope of salvation, you're not not really going to make it to the end, there's no certainty and I looked at him and I said, what? it's there if God is able to let you go in other words, to let you out of his hand, then he's not sovereign he's not in control, he doesn't control everything No, if you are saved, you are secure. Again, it's as simple as that. But, says you, I am still caught in sin. Well, that is a problem, yes. But I ask you, are we in heaven yet? No, we're not. Christ couldn't stay, so He gave us His Spirit. We've already looked at this. And why is the Spirit there? Because He continues the work of Christ. His work, not ours. And He works within us. He is the one that decides how quickly or how slowly we are turned from sin. He is the one who helps us to flee from the lusts and the passions of our flesh. He is the one that changes us day by day. It's called sanctification. That's the big word of it. But it just means being made more and more into Christ's image every single day. And that is what the Spirit is doing. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit, and therefore, that's the work that's going on in you. That's the work that's going on in me. But it will not be completed until we are in heaven. And so, yes, you can struggle with sin and still know God's love. But let us not kid ourselves. We have a responsibility to turn from sin. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. But we are not to look at ourselves and how far along we are in the Christian walk and say, yes, I'm here, so therefore I'm definitely saved. No. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us. He says it is not our regeneration that saves us. It is not even the fact that we are born again that saves us. It's the righteousness of Christ that saves us, that and that alone verse 9, it is still having been justified by his blood and nothing else that's the case of it, so let let us flee from sin but let us also gaze upon his beauty and remember his blood, because that's the only thing that justifies that's the only thing that keeps us, if you are a Christian this morning, there is nothing you can do to lose that's security. But let us strive to be holy, for God is holy. We have a responsibility. One more assurance before we finish. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Again, one of my favorite passages on assurance. And it says... Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. (coughs) Deposit is the key word there. Even if we take the English uh, meaning of it, it still works. Deposit. I want that house so I'm going to put a deposit down. I'm going to give a certain amount of money or a certain something to make sure that that's mine when I want it. And if I walk away then I lose my deposit. That's how it works. So if God has given us a deposit of his spirit then that means he is saying you're mine and we shall be his properly, fully with him when he comes to collect us. But until then, if he walks away, he loses the deposit. But can God be separated from God? No. No, he can't. He's given us his, he's given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Christ is more committed to you than you could ever ask or imagine. Do you know him this evening? I hope you do. Because this commitment of Christ, what a thing it is. Does it not show the beauty of Christ? There are plenty of songs that you can think of that talk of such things, but um, one of my favorites says that I heard the Saviour say Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Is Christ your all in all this evening? Because he's yours forever, if he is.